Hello and welcome to Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest Steve Armstrong is counsellor coach, won the Bruce Dahl Poetry Prize in 2015 and is shortlisted for the Ron, uh, Ron Pretty Poetry Prize, Australian Catholic University Poetry Prize and the Newcastle Poetry Prize. His first book, Broken Ground, was published by UWAP Publishing this month. So Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks, Maggie. <laughs> um, at your house. <laughs> So to open the show, um, and just to give readers a little sense of the book, can I just get you to read a poem from the collection? Um, sure. On the Delta? Yep. On the Delta. Go on upstream, past the old slipways, half-finished hulls laid up, and the long-legged cranes that fly high overhead. Keep walking until the swamp is crowded in about you. The salt-crusted leaves of mangrove against a limpid sky and the unplumbed mud and roots that breathe below. Watch the flooding tide come in around the iron bark pylons of a dismantled wharf and how water spreads out like a poured layer of clear resin and finds its true level among the mangrove's tempered trunks. Wait, let the migration come to a standstill, then walk away before the water draws back to the main arm of the river. Later, remember not this place and the way water mirrors trees and sky, but what it is you've found instead, this solid thing that's life within you. Let it wing into the regions of wider sight and feel for the company of words. Go on recalling the seamless flow over mud if you must, then claim what's yours. Mm. I love that one. And it's, it's kind of indicative, isn't it? And in, in that it's a lot of the work is sort of inspired by this, I guess, a mingling of human emotion in this natural world. Do you, do you, to get inspiration, do you just go out sometimes and walk? I mean, what, what, it, what spurs on the poem for you? Yeah, I mean, I do just go out and walk, not as much as I promised myself I ought to. But yeah, I might be walking around here. Like, I have my favourite walks around Mayfield East, and I guess it's when I immerse myself into that environment, something might happen that. I take home with me and I have to write about something. Might call it inspiration or... Um, but it, feel, it feels like I have to do it. It's not sort of... It's not an idea so much as a... Um, like Heaney quoting Frost, I think, talks about the lump in the throat, mm. you know, or the, the lovesickness. Do, do you have a practice? I mean, do you actually say, okay, look, I've got... I haven't written for a bit or, you know, on a regular basis I go out and I'm, you know, I'm just going to go and, and walk like a poet and look at things with a certain eye. Yeah, yeah, precisely that. Mm. Slow down enough to not walking for exercise so much as walking with a rhythm that would be um, in keeping with where I am and, you know, I might be immersing myself in the in the construction of the footpath if it's an old footpath that may, might be something inanimate mm. but more often it would be trees, sky, ground, passage you know that kind of thing. 
do you find yourself surprised when you then come back having viewed trees, sky, ground, this natural world, and find yourself working on a, a philosophical problem or um, an emotional issue or, you know, do the problems surprise you where they take you? Yeah, I don't have a plan. I'll just start with that um, initial inspiration, if you like, and then go from there. And mm. it'll sort of write itself. But I'm a great re reviser. Mm. You know, I revise and revise. So uh, th it may become more philosophical in that process, but I, I always keep all my drafts so that if I feel in the revising that I've lost the the strength that was there in the beginning, I can always go back and kind of look at it and go, well, what was really driving this? And mm -hmm. reinstate it. Yeah, the concrete image, I suppose. That, yeah, that gives or the feeling to... even, like what was it? You know, where was I feeling it? What what was going on? And is that is that still carried through in these later drafts? And often it's been muddied in some way. Mm. Well, you've been writing for quite a long time, though, but um, the book itself is, I guess it was a long time coming. At what point did you say, okay, you know, I need to pull this together into a, I guess, an object, a concrete thing, a book? Look, I was thinking about it for so long and sort of um, imagining that it may never happen that I can't really put a definite time on it all. I think I may have just started a couple of years ago having a, a crack at putting it into um, manuscript form. And then showed it to people that I trust and got feedback and it uh, developed from there. Yes, I imagine once you show it to somebody, there's pressure to to then get it out in the world. You, you sort of made a bit of a promise. Not really, in a <laughs> sense. No, I, I really put... The only sort of deadlines I work to would be writing a poem for a prize. Okay. I don't work well to a deadline. I mean, I write every day anyway because I want to. Mm. So it, it never feels like work and I don't like to make it like work in any way if I can avoid that. So that's, I couldn't imagine writing, say, someone gives me, write a poem on this sculpture, unless that sculpture happens to move me, I couldn't write anything about it. Mm. Yeah, on topic. <laughs> yeah, it would just be some intellectual exercise for me. I have to be sort of moved at some deeper level to want to write. Mm. But I, I've noticed that a lot of your work does deal with and I guess it's natural that it would with uh, you know this notion of fissures or you know human pain or yeah. you know some point of crack whether that's it could be natural world as well where there's a you know some some rupture or the human world and I guess that may be partially due to your practice um, your your day job <laughs> in effect I mean looking yeah. at you know looking at human frailty and all the, the pain that people go through uh, do you see poem in, poems in a way, and I guess you use it in your practice too, do you see them as, a, I guess, a point of healing or a means to work through verbally all of those sort of inchoate emotions or issues? It's a, it's a curious thing, really. As far as writing poetry, no, I don't. I just uh, write what's there. And I'm not, I don't want to kind of direct it in any way to be some sort of instrument. But I will use poetry within the therapeutic work I do with people as an instrument. But that's usually other people's poetry. It's, it's not the place for my poetry. I don't see that coming into that work. Mm. And but yet it seems yeah. to be healing anyway. <laughs> you know, you, there, there's something about it that, that seems to be almost a, a resolution of 
of those fissures. Yeah. Well, it's been healing for me. Mm. I think I'm at, I'm not thinking about it being healing for other people necessarily. It's I'm offering up something which I don't really know what it is. In a way, I mean, reading your review, I think you pointed out some things that I was only dimly aware of, which very interesting. You know, the fissures of grief, I think, was mm. a phrase. Or, and it's true that there's a melancholic feel, I guess, and that underlies a lot of them. And then the point you made was that there's a um, some sort of uh, transformation of that into love at some point, and that, mm. yeah, would be true, I think. But I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah. Well, could I get you to read one which is kind of indicative of that? Um, sure. Right. Which is uh, <clears throat> the wonderful A Cracked and Weathered Prayer, which is on page 52. Yeah. A Cracked and Weathered Prayer. Stretched canvas, a backwater, enamel black in the half-life, and blacker still the swans. Every morning I get out early. It's the hour before dawn, the middle of my life and I've moved back with my parents. Domestic entrails lie where they fall, whitewoods dumped around this brackish lagoon. The surface of still water, I pour myself upon it, heightened by all that's commonplace here. Bitu bush lies like a veil over the sand hills, flattened by miners who suck the fat from the belly, from the face, from beneath the crested forelock of this titanium-littered coast. Everywhere, disarmed things splinter and crack. They bear the weather's salty notations, manifold patterns of memories decayed. A narrow path through deep banks of Melaleuca, a crumbling line of World War II tank barriers wait. The Japanese will come from the north. Alone among abandoned cars with toothy grins, it's possible to imagine the comfort of a woman to make my innocent flee. A brim leaps, nothing else moves. A pale wash of light falls through the sky, as though the sky were walled with paper screens. Soon, the sun will light the spare tops of casuarinas. For now, they're women at the water's edge. And that transformation seems to me to be the casuarinas themselves, which, you know, it's a metaphor, but at the same time, they almost do transform into this kind of, I guess, a, uh, you know, these women who are almost absolving. You know, almost say, it's okay. It's okay you know, it's, yes, that is a possible reading. You know, when I wrote it, in a sense, it ended melancholic because I saw them as women suffering. Actually, I saw them standing at the water's edge, mm. broken in some way, but about to be lit by the... So in the darkness, sort of their bow, their heads bowed by the water and then mm. the light striking, some, some sort of transformation. But in that sense, I just trusted that that's what came. I, I didn't have a clear sense of what I was writing. Yes. But then going back to into these poems that maybe, you know, some of them are rooted in time and place. And yes. that's one that is particularly rooted in time and place. Yes. And yet the, you know, it's it's whilst the poem is rooted in time and place, you're here now, you know, it, you're not in that space. And so there's almost a I guess all poetry does this, but you know, there's almost a timelessness about 
a way in which that moment has been transformed into timelessness. It's become, again, a thing, something completely outside you. Yeah, and I mean, I love doing that. I mean, it, mm. in some sense, you know, particularly if I'm writing a poem about somebody I love, you know, children or, or a lover, the opportunity to immerse myself really deeply in the sense of who they are and who we are in relationship does hold it in some timeless way. It, mm. it, it's a wonderful thing to be, be able to do. Yes, and even with pain, it's almost painless to go back to this point. And, yeah. and maybe, again, that's the, the therapeutic aspect of it, but you know, to be able to go back to this point and in a way that's almost you know, more beautiful than, than painful. You know, it becomes dispassionate. You look back at it and say, "Okay, what was what was really the essence of this? That's not it's not toxic anymore." Yeah. Explore it. Explore I mean, it. in that case, there was in the pain there was great beauty as well. Mm. That's Belmont Laboon in yes. that um, in that poem, and it was astonishingly beautiful. And that more, you know, in the pre-dawn light, it's astonishingly beautiful. Mm. Yes. Um, one of the things I didn't say, of course, I mean, it's, it, I, I talked a lot about the sadness and you know, melancholic aspect of the poems and even the transformation, but one of the things I didn't point out, and I noticed it quite heavily on my rereading, was the humour in the poetry. So <laughs> Some of them are really quite funny. I mean, it's black, black humour, but yeah, it's, nevertheless. It's pretty yeah. dry and wry. Yes, it, it's droll, but it, it's, still, <laughs> it's still funny, actually, on, on the second reading, because it's not all about you know, sadness. Which one struck you? Um, I'm going to ask you to read it, <laughs> which is Lake, Lake George in an Eastern Grey Kangaroo, which is 32. And there's quite yeah. a few like that. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought you would have picked that one. There you go. Um, <clears throat> Lake George and an eastern grey kangaroo. One, stand on the floor of the lake when it's dry and you're standing like water. Pick your way through the tufted grass, past the unstrung wooden posts of forgotten fence lines and lie down on these spirit level flats, low and easy as the round-shouldered hills, like the patchwork of rain falling in the margins of the catchment to the south where clouds and hills rest their heads together. Ignore the eternal talk of unworthiness. Welcome the warmth of crazed mud and sedge and let yourself sink a little while the wind sings at the treeless slopes and tells you of the tall strangers in white. Fashionably thin, the wind turbines possess more than utility and they occupy your gaze longer than you'd like, hold you in perpendicular thrall. Evening light, too, evening light, lives on in the open arms of the hills, leans across the lake's uninterrupted bed, and discovers the darkened trunks of a woodland on the shore, where it confounds the weather-beaten anonymity of a derelict shearing shed. Return with the sun overhead and find walls patched with sheet on sheet of rusted iron, a doorway overgrown and a warped lintel. Inside are bright corners alive with shadow and the thoughts of a nesting brown. The slatted floor is collapsed and skies through the roof, a shed full of abandoned machinery, broken pine boxes, the scent of sump oil, diesel and sheep dung seasoned till it's sweet. 
nothing is square. But the hardwood frame cut straight from the woodland and fixed with fencing wire will stand a while yet. The rafters are backlit and vaulted by slanted light. My hand rests on a polished timber post. It bears the stain of hands greasy with dirty yellow wolf fat. It's possible to imagine making a hearth to patch this half-ruined holy place and revive a certain domesticity in which one might untangle the worst of a modern life. I'm becalmed. Or perhaps I've returned like the water returns to lie low in the body of the lake. 3. I begin my drive north soon after dawn. My home is some hours away. A well-graded gravel road takes me along the lake toward the freeway and the tail of the car drifts wide on the bends. I enjoy driving fast and loose in the early light. Suddenly, from a wall of dusty grass by the road, jumps a grey apparition. There's no time to break. When I lay a hand on her, she's already gone. The grille of the car makes a buckle grimace, but it's drivable. Above the engine's idling, implacable quiet, a mood befitting an inquisition. And what to say in my own defence? I denounce the casual violence of my long-time lover, Speed. I promise she means nothing to me. I'll end it. It's not that funny. But <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but it's uh, yeah. You've just killed a kangaroo. It's not all that funny, but no. but nevertheless, I think there's 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 some sense of you know maybe again it's this conversion of a sad moment into one where you know you've got a bit of distance from it, and we can always look back on those moments and say, well, you know. Well, the limits of the human condition, isn't it? Yes, I feel bad about it, but I also know I'll probably do it again. Well, even if, if, even if you don't want to do it again, yeah. or, yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe the speeding, yeah, the driving yeah. too fast. But yeah. then the ruse have death wishes anyway. So, <laughs> speaking is a multiple rue killer, right. not, not deliberately. <laughs> we, we've got a lot on our road. So, um, the other thing, and I, I started to talk to you about this a bit before, is um, all of your poems, I think, almost all of them in any case, have a certain, I guess, a rhythm. And that rhythm is like a walking rhythm because there's so much walking in them. Sometimes it's very um, explicit, and I'll get you to read one where it's really explicit. Sometimes it's a little subtler, but I feel like there's almost this sense of motion, of slow, kind of slow, deliberate motion that runs through nearly all the poems. This sense of, again, not going somewhere, but walking slowly to observe for the sake of the walk. Yeah, well, I like that observation. Um, the, there's a rhythm running through the poems informed by the walking mm. and look I, walking is very important to me uh, I find it well, it's an ancient feeling practice isn't it and for me it's um, it's the easiest way for me to have a sense of an embodied sense of where I am mm. yes and there's all the, there's all the changing terrain I mean that's interesting in and of itself I suppose but there's the breath that goes with the steps and the walk and I suppose it mirrors a lot of practices 
Yeah, a form of meditation, I guess, because mm. I don't meditate. I tried for years, but unsuccessfully, it just didn't work for me. So I, I think the walking is my is my meditation. It stills mm. my mind, and you know, enter my body. So mm. I'm paying attention, you know, with my body. I think that's what it becomes. Yes, I, I could almost say if you want, if you want a label, that it's like Flamir poetry. <laughs> you know, the the poetry of the walk in which the observations become kind of you and you just anchor for whatever else is happening inside internally. The internal unrest is anchored by the progression of food, which may be a metaphor for life, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, sort of pilgrimage in a sense. Mm. Yeah. Every walk being a mini, mini pilgrimage perhaps, a yeah. piece of a pilgrimage. So the poem, the poem that is quite explicit, of course, is walking to Aldi and back. <laughs> Which is 41. Yeah. Morning walk to Aldi and back after Arun Kalapkar's Jajuri. A telegraph pole on the corner. A hardwood character. It leans a little. Look around. All of them under the weather. More trains. More dust. No fourth coal terminal. This notice nailed on a pole out of arm's reach. And the sign for Park Street, Mayfield. No park. A bowling club and greens. A pool of Olympic blue. Doves on a wire. A line of parked cars in the street. And the birds don't miss. Magnolia, glossy green. Rabinia turning yellow in the heat. Chinese tallow woods short of breath, the paws of the pavement, no shirt and stubbies, elbows propped and guts slung behind a concrete fence, he lights a smoke, it can't be the first of the day, though it looks like it, how you going mate, not bad, that's good, Australia Post, a new red box on the corner, emptied by 6pm weekdays, or so it says, brown skin and fitted black yoga pants. She holds the car door open pose perfectly. So intelligent, mate, they talk to you. The young Kelpie squirms on the spot. Sit. He ties her up. See, she knows. The dog smiles. The slow, slap skid of thongs. Clunk, clunk, cowboy boots on the other side of the road. Black hat and jeans. An urban summer outfit. Flowering frangipennies crowd the street. A Frida Kahlo pink on orange and the scent of yellow over white. She wears a house dress to wave farewell. Daughter and grandkids strapped in the new four-wheel drive. A fine blue network of varicose veins. So, so the rhythm in that is incredibly strong, I find. You know it, the, the sentence structure and the length of the lines and the the series of images that continues to change really creates that forward motion I think you take the reader with you on that walk which is quite <laughs> fun in its way I have a friend who bought well, a friend of my mum's bought uh, the book and she lives locally and she recognised the walk huh. from the poem so that that was nice yes and, the, and even the touch of humour with the you know uh, to hold the door pose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Pompadour, Cardor Car- Open Pose. Yes, yeah. that's right, Cardor Open Asana <laughs> or something. So um, that's, I, I think a lot of the poems do that and they have that rhythm and they have the, do take the reader along this, I guess, this kind of path of progression, which is really, um, it's very soothing in its way as well, because I think as you're reading the poem, your breath settles into a similar kind of walking rhythm, which is maybe that four in, four out, <laughs> sort of four counts in, four counts out, but it's a, a good, a good soothing resting breath. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Mm. Uh, well, I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but it fits. Mm. Yes. So, day job as a counsellor, yeah, and, and maybe not quite a day job because it's kind of a vocation. Um, but do you find that um, your work influences your writing, or your writing influences your work? I'd say the poetry has influenced the work more. It's it's been in that direction. So precision around language, uh, freshness of language. I mean, it's very easy in, in uh, working with people and counselling to become pretty hackneyed in what you say, same old tropes mm. that you roll out for everyone. You know, you're dealing with anxiety, you say the same things. And that's pretty dull for everybody, I think. So poetry has helped me uh, excavate the particulars of people's lives and develop fresh language, phrases, imagery, symbols. And that, that's, that's been great. So, you know, toward a poetics of therapy, if you like. Mm. Yes, I mean, um, do, you, do you find that there's a, maybe a similarity in terms of kind of getting to the heart of things in looking at people, looking at lives, looking at time, looking at you know, the influence of the past on the present? Not really. It's it's so much more deliberate in the therapy world, and because my responsibility is to the person I'm with, mm. so it's not. I can't allow myself a creative license that I do with poetry. That's where it's very different. True, and poetry, of course, is art, which is a whole. It's it's a world in and of itself. It, it yes. stands alone. It is itself. It's not yeah, a mean, that's not the a beauty means. of it. Yes, yeah, for me. Means to an end. Um, so it's quite unusual, I think, to put the title poem. In a book last um, and yet it works perfectly in in the collection did you struggle at all with the order of things did you did you chop yes. and change a fair bit oh there were many <laughs> <laughs> it had many different shapes and um, yeah I'm not sure that I got it all together um, how would I like it you know in the end it's like you drive it that many times that you'd lose some perspective and your readers have probably had enough of it, you know, your trusted readers. So in the end, it was my best effort. Yeah. Was it hard to say, okay, I'm done. I'm just going to stop here. It was, yeah. I mean, I've been editing. When I read them, you'll notice I've edited some of them again. Have you? Yeah. I have. <laughs> <laughs> I've never done it. Yeah. No, so I go on editing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess at least you've got the... This, you can't really edit the book anymore. No. You can no. just do it when you read it. Yeah. So I want you, we're almost out of time, but I do want you to read one more, which is, of course, the title poem. So that's Up and Down a Dry Lake, if, if we can squeeze that in. Up and Down a Dry Lake. Mm-hmm. One. Here's a lake without water, a bed too often denied a body, and skied flats. Don't forget the water when it's gone. Fidelity born down low belly of the lake, a play of tessellated light, 
grass sunburn to a single malt bends before the unfenced wind and grins wide as a broad water. And yet, it's the passing clouds I hear laughing. Too dry out here for tears at my coming up short for the words that won't land. A lake two hundred metres deep with silt. Long accumulation chokes in the throat like grief. Nonetheless, a small figure standing in the middle, I'll speak for what in his. Lay down on dried mud and tufted grass. Be baptised by dirt and remembered by earth. Thin rain anoints balding hills, and the lake falls for the sky's catchment. 2. On the western shore of the lake, a scarf rises. I climb hard for the top. Struggling to breathe, I find I'm standing in a boneyard of gums, a forest unfired, heavy with ribbon bark and big trees felled by a storm. I sight men on horseback, whose habit is killing. I hear the screams of people, given away by the smoke of their fires. How many years pass before the differences between murder and death erodes? A mob of eastern grey kangaroos move off in slow motion, a dream. Everything interior and burnished with sorrow. There's no way back now. An almost perpendicular descent looks impossible in this rucked life. My hope remains human. A weathered post to rest a hand on. Remnants of a fence to follow clear of this thicket. Lee side of the ridge line, a chance on wheel tracks, sketched like a dry watercourse, a spare gesture. This place of passage, bare patches of hard packed earth, give off a gritty warmth that draws me close again, and I love the broken ground as a child loves it, awake to who I am and who I'm not. <clears throat> Wonderful. I love it. That could be my favourite poem in the book. But I don't know. I love them all. So, um, are you working on something new? Is there something in the works? I mean, a, a big collection, or are you just writing individual poems at the moment? I'm just writing, and yep, they, they keep coming at a pretty steady rate. So, and I'm enjoying what, you know, I think in some ways that are a development. Um, from this work I think putting the discipline of putting it all together was really helpful like to really work at it and and think hard about the shape of things I think did advance my understanding of the shape of poems and mm. and rhythm and and phrasing and punctuation so that that was all a benefit um, from putting the collection together and I suppose all the editorial work you do as well through that process mm. Yeah, with somebody else. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. I think that's all we have time for. But thank you so much for talking with me today, Steve. And good luck with it all. And um, listeners, thank you for listening. And uh, bye for now. Thanks, Meg.